Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Oh, welcome once again. I know that uh, you all probably have realized by now that I am not Vernon Oaks. I am Pat Thornton. I'm with you once again. I'd like to thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, Vernon is doing much better right now, but uh, your prayers seem to have been answered. And uh, we're very, very grateful. We're thankful. We're thankful, we're appreciative, and we continue to be prayerful. So we ask for your continued prayers, and we thank you. Thank you for thinking about us, lifting Vernon up in prayer, and for being with us once again. I am going to be joined today by a co-host, a friend of Everything Co-op. We actually work as a team. It gives me an opportunity to talk about our team. We have uh, five people on our primary core team, and that's uh, Rob McClinton and uh, Justin Franks, Melanie, Vernon Oaks, and myself. You all know me because I've been producing Everything Co-op for the past 10 years. But Rob McClinton of SmurlWorld.coop will be co-hosting with me today, and we have the pleasure of having one of our good friends with us. We've been working so closely with the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and DAWI, Democracy at Work Institute, ever since the inception of Everything Co-op. This year we're celebrating 10 years and as would have it, DAWI's celebrating 10 years of actually administering their state of the sector and their census report. With us today we have none other than Julian McKinley. Julian is the Senior Communications Director at DAWI, and as I mentioned, DAWI is the Democracy at Work Institute. He leads the communications initiatives in support of its work to expand worker ownership. He's a passionate and mission-driven storyteller with deep roots in community empowerment and economic development. Previously leading organizational storytelling and strategic communications around community and systems level economic change at United Way of Central and Northwestern Connecticut and Capital Institute. Welcome, Julian. Thanks so much, Pat. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, it's certainly good to have you. You know, today uh, we'll be talking a little bit. We gave you a little plug, those of you who get out our notice, talking about this census that you all have been conducting for almost 10 years. And... Um, I was talking with Julian before the show and mentioning that we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary and Dowie's really excited because this will be the first time that they will be able to compare data over 10 years. Tell us before we get into the whole census, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in the cooperative movement. 
Sure, Pat. Thanks so much. Well, first, I think it's sort of a full circle moment coming on to your show. I think I started at Dowie about five years ago. One of the first things I did when I started at Dowie was uh, listen to Everything Co-op. And I think Esteban was on. <laughs> Esteban, the uh, executive director of the U.S. Federation, was on the show uh, that day. I know you've had him on a bunch, so it's great to join you on this side of the, the telephone and this side of the radio, so to speak. I started my career really as a journalist, but I've always done like local financial security messaging uh, type work, really around how can working families uh, do a better job making ends meet? What are the supports that are available to them to help them make ends meet? And also spend some time looking at some really high level um, systems level uh, financial adjustments that we can make to ensure that capitalism and our, our large economic system are better suited to, yes, the experience of workers, but also to the environment and not contributing to climate change and things like that. And that's the world really in which I came across co-ops, you know, the, the world in which there are lots of conversation about triple bottom line businesses. Lots of conversation about how can business do better, um, and that's really the heart of worker co-ops because they are small businesses that exist to serve the workers that, that work in them. You know, uh, you said a mouthful, but most importantly, Vernon and I attended the National Co-op Bank, NCB, annual meeting just a few weeks ago. Mm. And, you know, there were about three or four people who told us that they had listened to everything co-op in preparation for their job in co-ops or for their interview in co-ops. Several <laughs> people told us that we were like amazed. And for those who weren't listening to everything co-op to learn about co-ops, they were listening just to get a little bit deeper into the culture and understanding of co-ops. So how did you feel when you listened to Esteban? You know, did it shed any light on anything or... Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, it certainly shed light on things, to say the least. I think the you know the U.S. Federation, they're our sister organization, and they have a really unique position within the within the field of worker ownership because they are the national membership organization for worker co-ops. So they are the place where worker co-ops, the members, can go to gain you know best practices. They can connect with other worker co-ops across the country and really be in community. And so, listening to Esteban, listening to the show, I really got a like a full snapshot of the community that I was walking into, um, both from like a, a policy standpoint, from a theoretical standpoint, but also just the nuts and bolts of like how worker cooperatives work and what they need to, to thrive, the size of this, the field itself, and really you know the direction that it's going in. So I, I found it incredibly helpful. Well, you know, that, that that's something we're going to have to make sure we include when we talk about everything co-op, because it was something that actually missed our radar that's what happens when you talk to the folks that you're actually dealing with now you know when we talk about this census one of the things that folks were were really excited about i know mo was with you then and she was really excited about the fact that before you all started doing this survey there wasn't a lot of data around to gauge you know the involvement in worker cooperatives and and such and one of the things that we find that when you go to a bank, it's kind of like going for a loan. If you don't have any collateral or anything to show, then they don't want to lend any money to you or loan any money to you. So when you're trying to find support or when you're trying to get people to become interested in cooperatives, you need to have some backup. So how has the census played a role in helping Dawi to advocate for worker cooperatives? 
Yeah, thanks, Fred. I mean, that's exactly right. I think a lot of the times you know, when we're looking for data on worker cooperatives, most of it comes from the U.K. When you hear people talk about, you know, oh, I'm really excited about worker co-ops, you hear people, of course, mention Mondragon. They mention cooperatives in Argentina. But there has been a lot missing here in the United States. Um, and we think that this census has done a, like a, a good job of sort of filling in the blanks and helping people understand how big is the field, who are they, how many worker co-ops are they, where are they. Um, the initial census that we conducted was done in, uh, or the, the results were published in 2013. Um, there had been some previous studies conducted by like, the University of Wisconsin and uh, Southern New Hampshire University, but there weren't any figures on longevity. You know, there weren't any, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of accuracy with respect to this is how many co-ops there are, or this is how long they've been in business. And so that's really the core of how we approached you know, starting the census. And so what we're able to do with the results is we published a report called the State of the Sector. And the State of the Sector really provides a good foundation for us to, for uh, when, I say, when I say us, it's not just DAWI, it's also the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. We conduct the census in partnership together and publish it together. Um, but what it allows us to do is to really advocate uh, for worker co-ops to ensure that worker co-ops have uh, supportive policies at the federal, state, and local level to ensure success. Um, it also helps us advocate for support for the ecosystem of nonprofits and other organizations, including CDFIs, uh, community development financial institutions, um, who are really helping uh, co-ops get off the ground, those startup cooperatives, but also helping established businesses um, become worker cooperatives for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I thought so. I'm, I'm a numbers person. I'm into numbers and math and you know, I've sat on a few boards for some of these banks in terms of, you know, the post-George Floyd wave, if you will, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that we do a lot more with this wave than the previous waves that we've had. And it's been really difficult to gauge effectiveness and impact and to hold people accountable because we entered into an era where we wanted to do a lot of non-traditional lending. People who don't have the normal expected backup. And I, and I think that one of the things that Esteban and Melissa and many other people have talked about in the past is that with cooperatives, you have to also teach people how to look at a different model because you can't hold one person accountable for any money that is gotten any 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 loans that are taken out and because you have to look at the model differently and so as you advocate for worker cooperatives how does the census help you to actually just teach people about the different metrics of worker cooperatives yeah, thanks, Pat. I mean, you mentioned a couple of like huge impediments to I think helping or having worker co-ops grow and thrive. But one of them is it's really basic. It's that lots of folks don't even know that worker cooperatives are a business model. And so when they see it for the first time, they are saying, I don't know what to do with this. And so they either push it away or they'll revert or try to, you know, apply some other form to the worker cooperative model. And one of the challenges, and we talked about this in the very first state of the sector, is that there is no like standard across states. There are some states where you can, you know, incorporate as a worker cooperative and that means something, but for the vast majority of states, that's not the case. And so people are really hearing about it for the first time 
you know, in many cases. And so our job is to say with the state of the sector, with the census, these are the businesses that exist. This is what they look like. This is how big they are. And I think that's really the first step to really helping people understand how they might support them, whether it's from a lender perspective or nonprofit, nonprofit perspective or even a consumer perspective. Mm-hmm. That clarifies that point. Um, I, I think that, you know, really what I've been trying to focus on is a, is the fact that worker cooperatives, cooperatives, there's something that everyone isn't totally aware of. Everyone doesn't totally understand. And I think that Dawi allows people to come to better understand them. And as we begin to talk more about not only the census, but other things that you do, I hope that people will gain a better understanding. But we're going to take a brief pause and we're going to have people call in at 1-800-450-7876. That's 1-800-450-7876. When we come back, Rob McClinton will take over and talk with Julian McKinley. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. listener first time uh, host here so uh julian thank you again for being with us here on the show these are some really big shoes to fit in for vernon you know with when you're on when you're on the show here too now this is going to give him an even bigger head so that's uh I, i'm going to run that risk but then it'll match his shoes so that works out well <laughs> so so just you know being new to the cooperative space let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the Federation and Dobby specifically. So what exactly is the difference between the two organizations? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, and first, uh, you know, our, our thoughts and positive energy out to, to Vernon and to Recovers, um, but also great to be here for your first um, time hosting. The, uh, the Federation and Dawi have a, uh, a very, very close relationship. We are sister organizations. The Federation is 10 years older than Dawi, and it actually... Uh, started DAWI to basically fill a gap that existed in the field. And that gap was to do some work that the Federation at the time wasn't or now isn't able to do either because it's a membership organization. And that work is to, to do research, to drive funding towards the field, and really help grow the field. Whereas the Federation is meant to serve the members of worker cooperatives who comprise its membership. Our founding executive director, Melissa Hoover, was also the first full-time staff member and founding executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. And so we are intertwined as two organizations. We also continue to work extremely close together now. As I mentioned earlier, we conduct this census in partnership and produce the results together. But we even share a Slack workplace together. We hold uh, meetings together as, as our full uh, workplaces. We hold retreats together at times and conduct strategy as well. So we are incredibly intertwined. I think actually the Federation has um, a number of board seats uh, at, at DAWI as well. Got it. Okay. So it's, it's the, the research arm that sort of the, the administrative machinery forward to help to help, uh, help the cause. Yeah, that was the main purpose. Okay, great. Fantastic. Fantastic. 
So before we go pivot back to the movement and what we've learned from the census, you know, there's a little bit to your background that I wanted to just chat with you about. So one of the things that, you know, that has come up, and it's certainly it's, it's, it's something that's important to us here at Everything Co-op, is around telling the stories of, of cooperatives and letting people, because as you said before, a lot of people didn't even know that the model existed. You know, it was... It had to be introduced to me, but once once it was a few years ago by Violetta uh, uh, Dot Cooperation, and when I thought about it, I was like this is this is the way humans have done business for the majority of the time. It didn't. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution where we we became extremely extractive of the environment of communities and things like that. Well, communities before with slavery, but before a community never really consumed more than its environment could provide. Right. Um, but once we got into industrialization, that changed. So when it comes to telling that story, to letting people really appreciate what it is that cooperatives bring to the table as a business model, as probably close to the original business model, as a storyteller yourself, what, what do you think that we as cooperatives need to do? Yeah. That's a great question, Rob. I think that there is nothing better than like being able to touch and feel and see something in existence. I think that you know when you're able to understand what cooperatives look like, who the people are in them, identify them in your own community, that's when it becomes sort of real for people. When I talk to people about what worker cooperatives are, what employee ownership is, just you know, as a large umbrella term, people still, as you said, don't necessarily get it at the you know, at first until there's a face put on it, until they can see, okay, who are the business owners, until they can see, okay, there are five of them together really sharing in decision-making, sharing in profits, and these are the impacts of running business that way. I think that the more we're able to share that story, whether it's on social media, whether it's that showing up at like business expos, whether it is showing up in movement spaces, and helping people understand the various impacts and benefits of worker ownership, that's where we can begin to sort of, or continue rather, to make inc- incremental steps toward having worker cooperatives known um, within the mainstream. And I think the momentum's there. Uh, there has been lots of progress made, particularly over the past 10, 10 years. We've seen the number of worker co-ops grow. The past few years where we've understood, like, you know, I think it's common knowledge now pretty much that capitalism has in many respects failed workers. People are turning to uh, better business models. We've seen a rise in unionizing. We've seen the rise in in worker ownership. And so we have a a great opportunity now to really uphold that story and really fill the void as people are searching for something better than the traditional work experience that they've had. Yeah, I agree with you that what people are experiencing now, like this moment is really kind of custom made for this collaborative capitalism, right? Instead of uh, competitive capitalism. And it's not, it's not a, at least in my opinion, it's not an either or, right? It's an and, right? It's been too much of the one and not enough of the other. Uh, and so if you just weave in more, more collaboration, more partnerships, more small businesses where it's everyone has a, a seat at the table, then you can kind of balance the system out. So, so one of the things I took a, when I take a look at the, at the census data, you have the big circles around a lot of the major metropolitan areas um, and then not a whole lot in between. Right. So it, it kind of feels like there are not as many um, as there probably are um, in actually in those areas. What are some of the things that we can do or can be done 
to help people look at spinning up if they don't have them cooperatives in these areas, right? So you can't just be Austin, right? When it comes to Texas, right? Like there's gotta be in San Antonio, Houston, they've gotta be cooperatives there or people who are thinking about launching a business that could be a cooperative. What, what are some of the things we can do to inspire that? Yeah, so it's interesting, Rob, because you know when we um, when we create our map, which is a map of the worker cooperatives, sort of like epicenters, the large ecosystems across the country, that's based on the count that we do during the census. We have seen a couple of things happen. Number one, yes, there are these clusters um, along the coast, like. The big ones are New York City and the Bay Area. But we also see, like, there's some interesting things if you look, if you read between the lines. And one of them is the amount of rural cooperatives. Now, rural communities aren't clustered like urban areas. But when we look at the amount of rural cooperatives, they actually make up, I think it's like the number three largest ecosystem of cooperatives across the United States. And so it's like it's New York, it's Bay Area, I think it's Puerto Rico, and then rural co-ops. And so while they're, again, they're not clustered together, but the movement is there, Um, the activity is there, and the need is there to invest in worker co-ops. Certainly a part of that is that storytelling piece that we were just talking about, uh, being able to to educate people within those communities to let them know, okay, yes, these, this is a type of business model that may work for you. And also these are the resources to help you get started, which is a key piece. But the other thing is actually, I think, looking at those larger ecosystems to see what are the things that are making this a generative space? What are the things contributing to large number of worker co-ops pop up? And when we look at that, you know, there are, um, what, you know, one of the obvious ones is public funding. So that's public funding to nonprofits, to, uh, to other organizations who are intentionally supporting worker cooperatives or intentionally starting worker cooperatives to meet the needs of workers. And so, um, you know, if I think about New York City, for example, an organization that comes to mind is the Center for Family Life. They work in a particular neighborhood, and in that neighborhood, they are working with particular workers who have particular experience, many of whom work in the service industry and are trying to gain access to better wages, are trying to gain access to safer workplaces. Um, and so CFL is using the worker co-op model to help those workers achieve those things. And so when we're able to support specific nonprofits, specific organizations, and specific set of workers, I think that's one way that we can have continued growth um, within those rural areas and in other places across the country. Okay, okay. Now, when it comes to some of the things that uh, cooperatives bring to the table or that, that you sound in the census as far as benefits and those kinds of things, uh, and the, before we take our break, what are some of the things that you're finding that worker cooperatives are providing for their workers that they may not be getting in non-worker structures. Yeah. So immediately, you know, the first thing is you're provi- you're having a you, you gain access to a workplace um, where you can set your own wages. We know that when people own their jobs, they pay themselves better. They give themselves better access to benefits. Their overall work experience is, is better. That's just it's common sense, right? <laughs> and so that's something that we see immediately when people start worker co-ops. In addition to that, you have opportunities for workers who may face discrimination in another workplace, not take that same discrimination because they're creating a workplace that fits for them, that works for them with the people that they know. Okay. Yeah. You're less likely to fire yourself if you, if, uh, <laughs> if you have the situation, if you want to cut, more likely to cut hours. So that's, that's really fantastic. All right. So we are heading out and, uh, Pat, you going to take us out, take us out on break? Yeah. You know, we, we're 
Coming up on that time to take that break, I encourage you to give us a call at 1-800-450-7876. That's 1-800-450-7876. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're back. We're back. We're back. You know, at this point in the program, we we always try to make sure we thank our sponsors before the end, so you can hear all about how thrilled we are to have the sponsorship that we have since the inception of Everything Co-op. We've been sponsored by National Cooperative Bank, NCB, as many of you know. NCB's mission is to support and to be an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. For 40 years, National Cooperative Bank has served businesses that seek to make a positive local impact because NCB believes... It's simply the right thing to do. Since its founding, NCB has an uncommon mandate to ensure that its efforts benefit the most in need, supporting low-income communities and the expansion of cooperative initiatives. We certainly thank NCB. I know many, many years ago, Chuck Snyder said he thought he was just supporting one of Vernon's interest you know and then he heard this velvety voice and you know he experienced all the furor and and all of what everything co-op helped and he put together and may chuck rest in peace chuck was the first person to support everything co-op he transitioned a little over a year ago and we certainly thank him for not only what he did for everything co-op but for what he did with NCB. So I'd like to say that, you know, at this time. But he put, pulled together an advisory panel. And uh, the support that we have from NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, and um, many other alliances and many other uh, people who have supported Everything Co-op comes from the support that we have from NCB. So we're most appreciative and we take a special amount of time just to thank them. Uh, Casey Fannin, who's the new head of NCB, has been extremely supportive and he's blazing his own trail with us and helping us to go into new directions and we thank him for doing that. And our brother RL over there, who's the producer extraordinaire when Vernon goes on the road. So we just want to take a moment to thank National Cooperative Bank and um, all of what they do. And as we celebrate 10 years, we look forward to 10 more. I'm going to turn it right back over to Rob and Julian and invite you to call and you can call in and talk with them at 1-800-450-7876. Take it away, Rob. Thanks, Pat. And, and, you know, I was just at um, NCB's office there in D.C. for the they were 
and in partnership with NCBA, they hosted the uh, Cooperative Executive Roundtable. I was honored to be uh, in the presence of some some truly great folks and within the uh, within the community there. And it is really just not only um, uh, a great event, but they really went all out to show their commitment to the cooperative um, the cooperative business business model cooperative movement and. Something I learned there, which I would not have thought by, by by the name of National Cooperative Bank, is they have personal and non-cooperative commercial checking accounts. So even if you're not doing a cooperative and you just need a new bank account or personal account, you go to NCB because you can get an account there. Take care of them because they'll take care of you. I'll testify to that right up front. Okay, Julian, let's get back to the discussion. We, we were talking a little bit about benefits. And I would like to continue on that on that theme. In your work in the previous life with uh, hyperlocal uh, reporting and working with um, local working class families, you get a real feel for what are the needs of those families. And a lot of those folks were heavily impacted during the pandemic, as a lot of people were, uh, and a lot of businesses were impacted. And and cooperatives, no exception, but how they weathered that storm in a lot of cases, was quite different than their non-cooperative partners. Tell us a little bit more about um, the cooperative businesses and work-owned businesses during that time period and the benefits they offer. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So we surveyed worker cooperatives twice during COVID, once in 2020, and then again, we incorporated questions related to COVID during our 2021 census of worker co-ops. And of course, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of that this year again, but we found cute, a few key things. Number one is that 50% of businesses, worker-owned businesses, they pivoted in some respects during COVID to change their, their business practices. And that was the norm. Obviously, we know many businesses had to change what, what they were doing. So they either maybe they changed their, um, their model from from you know, in-person to virtual or remote. Maybe they moved their services out, outdoors. Some of them closed their brick-and-mortar locations, uh, but also some of them increased their production and saw higher demand. There was actually, you know, I think folks talk about the cooperative principles a lot. Principle six is, you know, uh, cooperatives helping cooperatives. We saw a ton of cooperatives helping cooperatives. Uh, a story that comes to mind for me is two cooperatives opportunity threads in North Carolina and the largest co-op in the country, which is Cooperative Home Care Associates in New York. The Cooperative Home Care Associates workers, they do home care and they did not have access to, to PPE early on in the pandemic. And so Opportunity Threads, a North Carolina-based uh, manufacturer, sewed PPE for their workers and shipped them up to them as, as they were and so they could use as they were going into the homes of New Yorkers at the very heart of the pandemic. That is wow. like a specific example. Yeah, it, 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 it's pretty fantastic. It certainly uh, gives me goosebumps when I hear about it, when I talk about it, but it's also indicative of the larger, I guess, the, the larger uh, pattern that we saw across the country where co-ops were reducing their, their revenue. Um, businesses across the country had, had revenue reduced, but co-ops really sought to preserve the jobs that they supported and, so, and to preserve the hours that their workers needed to make ends meet. And so when we compared co-ops to you know, your traditional businesses, we actually saw that co-ops may have actually performed a little bit better during, during the pandemic. We hear a lot, you know, maybe co-ops are, maybe they weather the storm a little bit more, and that's exactly what we saw. Uh, you know, 80% of worker cooperatives during the, during the pandemic's worst moments were able to avoid 50% or greater revenue loss, whereas just a little over 70% 
of your conventional U.S. businesses avoided 50% or greater revenue loss. We we talked to about 180 or so worker co-ops, so it's not a it's not the direct experience of every single co-op across the country, but it's certainly a good look at a trend and possibly points to some of the strengths of the business model itself. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's uh, there's something to be said about spreading out the, um, you know, as a business owner may be concerned about spreading out the profits or spreading out the the upside by 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 having a worker cooperative. Well. The flip side is you also get to spread out the downside when, when, when something happens, right? And, and exactly. so you don't have to take hours away from employ, from employees when you can have co-owners saying, "I am willing to reduce my hours so that we can all we can all stay afloat." So that's one of those great things about the structure that I think people don't really appreciate. Um, and you know, one of the things I'm looking taking a look at the at the survey and it ties into the ownership uh, component and the differences and the the top to bottom pay ratio. So you you say when you, when folks open up the, the the survey they download it and take a look at it, they're going to see this two to one top to bottom pay ratio. Okay, so you know the the lowest paid person versus it's just two to one. You got to follow that little dotted line over to the side right, where it gives the details for the non cooperative ratio. Three hundred was it three hundred and fifty one. To yeah. one? To one. <laughs> it's staggering. Yeah, it almost leaves you speechless. What, you know, what, what can you say about that? But we've seen corporate pay explode over the past decades, right? And we know that you know uh, regular worker wages have not exploded or kept pace. We've even seen inflation now, but we continue to see you know really really high bonuses and extremely high corporate pay. And so that three fifty one to one is a true representation of top to bottom pay. And worker cooperatives, of course, are getting into business for a different reason. They're getting into business because they want to support the individual workers and benefit from their labor. And so, you know, we, so when we ask them, you know, what is your top to bottom pay ratio? Two to one is the number that came up. And it's really, you're, you're absolutely right. It is staggering. There are a few words that describe it better. The difference between that two to one pay ratio and the 351 to one for your, your typical corporation in the U.S. I wonder if there's a little bit of a disconnect between the, uh, the whole purpose sometimes of spinning up a company. Like there's, there are many reasons to start a business, and many, and almost all of them are valid. And so, someone who would say, "Look, it's three fifty-one to start the business. That's what they want to pay themselves. That's that's fine." But there are lots of reasons to start a business. They, you know, if you need childcare within their community, you can wait for someone to start one, hope that it's not, you know, invested in by private equity, so that you can actually be able to try to afford the <laughs> or you can join together with a bunch of other parents and do one for a different purpose, a purpose of not making a profit, but instead of solving a problem, right? Yeah. So you need a local grocery store. You can solve a problem or you can try to make a profit, make profit in both cases. But mm-hmm. there is the, you don't make enough profit to pay one person 351 times what everyone else makes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit of a yeah. different spread. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love that framing, Rob, particularly because, Lots of folks who are coming to worker co-ops for the first time and they see a lot of the excitement around worker co-ops, I think people don't understand that worker co-ops are a tool to solve specific issues in a community. That tool could be um, you know, closing racial wealth gaps. That tool could be 
saving a business that, you know, it, its owner is retiring and that they were going to sell the business or close the business, but let's instead sell it to the workers and save the critical resource or critical services that they provide along with those value jobs. And so from Dowie's standpoint, we don't just say worker co-ops are great just for the sake of saying, hey, we need more worker co-ops. It's really because the models solve specific problems within communities. And the better we understand that, the better we can support them to, to be used and, and, uh, and support the workers who own them. Yeah, and I, I think that whole keeping a business open thing is a fantastic point to make because we, we know that we're going through a, um, a wave now of boomers who are leaving the marketplace uh, to retire their businesses. They're trying to sell them. Not a lot of being sold. So converting them into, into worker cooperatives is a viable approach to keeping that business alive in the community. It, it's, and like you said, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be about solving a problem, right? It could be, there's a worker cooperative. I can't think of the name of it in Boulder. I think it is. And it's just a bookshop and a coffee shop that people love. That's it. It's, you know, it's not, it's not you know, taking care of children. Or thing. It's a bookshop and a coffee shop, but the community loves it. Yeah. Um, and they convert it to work a cooperative and they've managed to stay open and keep those jobs going. I want to talk a little bit when we come back from the break, a little bit of the differences between us businesses here, cooperatives as, and you referenced before, like UK, Spain, Argentina, like what are some of the other countries real quick that are, do they have a strong work cooperative environment? Yeah. So, I mean, those are the, the biggest ones, but we've seen, um, you know, Canada has a strong worker cooperative environment. Italy has a strong worker cooperative environment. I actually just returned from Kenya, which I wouldn't say has a strong worker cooperative environment. We're trying to grow there, but has a strong cooperative environment uh, largely. So they understand cooperative principles and are really invested in worker co-ops. Fantastic. Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about the differences between what we're doing here and what they are more successfully doing and all the other dares there. So we are heading out, and uh, Pat, you going to take us out? Take us out on break? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Um, we're about to close for our final break. You only have one more segment with us. I hope if you had a question, you call in at 1-800-450-7876. That's 1-800-450-7876. We hope that you'll stay with us, ask a question, but most importantly, do not touch that dial. We will be right back. News Talk 1450 WOLAM where information is power. Welcome back. Thank you for staying with us here. We appreciate you. Appreciate you being here. So, uh, Julie, let's, let's talking about some of the differences in the, the way that worker cooperatives uh, are performed or thought of, communicated about in countries like UK, Canada, Argentina versus the U.S. What are some of the differences that you're seeing between those two environments or our environment and all the others. Yeah. So there are a couple of things. One is I think that the most obvious is just the like government support from the federal and regional level for infrastructure around worker cooperatives. Like we see in Italy, for example, in Emilia Romagna, there has been a and there has been since the, the early nineteenth century, I'm sorry, early twentieth century 
government support, even hubs set up and offices set up to specifically help worker cooperatives grow and thrive. Aside from the like the very tangible pieces that governments can put in place to help cooperatives thrive, there there certainly is a cultural aspect to it. And like our approach to work here in the United States, which is very different than in other countries. There is, I think in many respects, a culture of like overwork in the United States. Whereas in other places, people don't see work as the, as, so, as so core to their identity. Whereas, like, I'm working so I can, you know, it, it, people may work so they can do other things, like enjoy time with their family. Um, you know, uh, it's really about what is, you know, answering the question, what is the purpose of life? And so in many respects, work and your, you know, pull yourself up from your by your bootstraps uh, mentality here in the U.S. is really a huge impediment to uh, worker cooperatives, I think, growing as people don't immediately get the benefits of working together. Now, the flip side of that is we have a long history of cooperative economics in the U.S., but that narrative just doesn't cut through and is, I think, uh, overridden by the that bootstraps narrative, the American dream narrative of, like, if you as an individual work really hard, you can see success. And sure, there are benefits to that, but I think really having people exposed to and educated on the history of economics, of cooperative economics specifically here in the U.S. would go a long way. I know you have had Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhardt on your show in the past, and I've spoken to her. She does a wonderful job of sharing that history. You know, things like black churches starting because people pooled their money together buying land and then actually starting cooperatives throughout, you know, over the past you know, hundred and more years. So knowing that history and understanding this is something we've always done can really help move our, our cooperative ecosystem in the right direction. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could really see that the whole, that, that mythos around, you know, the doing it all yourself when in truth, there's, there's there hasn't been a single human who's done everything all by themselves. Like it's, it's just never, it's just never happened. But that, that mentality, that viewpoint or that belief, that mythos is really uh, stands in the way. And even the government support, it doesn't, it's not like we're advocating for something that's unusual or to have the government tip the scale because there is, I do a lot of work with SBA and SCORE. There are lots of resources that are put against supporting uh, competitive capitalist um, companies all the time. I mean, the system from top to bottom is around leaning in that, leaning in that direction. What we're talking about is we could put some more effort into leaning to more a collaborative models to help people find fulfillment and opening and building their own collaborative businesses like daycares, like grocery stores to fill gaps in the marketplace. And that's just a matter of a healthy ecosystem, I think. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, there is government support here in the U.S. Um, it has actually strong bipartisan support for worker co-ops in the U.S. The legislation was just passed in California to establish an office in the go- governor's office specifically around worker co-ops and, um, and, and businesses converting to become worker co-ops. And so it's there. Again, there's just, there is sort of like a disconnect from an individual um, basis where, you know, I'm starting a business for, for X, Y, and Z. Maybe it's because I want to spend my profit. Maybe it's because I want to sell it. Maybe it's because I want to attract venture capital. All of those reasons. But, um, yeah, we do have, I think, a, a little ways to go to catch up to some other countries. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. I'm going to kick it over to Pat here. Okay. Well, this has been a lively discussion still going on. One of the things that came out to me, though, is um, 
you know, you talked about cooperative economics. And it, it reminded me that cooperative economics is the fourth principle of Kwanzaa, Ujamaa. And when I think about co-ops, I think about cooperation, you know, whether it's cooperation Jackson or just cooperation, because we're going through a period where we have to collaborate and cooperate in order to get further. And when you talked about, Julian, about the outcomes and the experiences of co-ops versus the traditional businesses, it was all about the focus. And I had to write down that our traditional businesses, for many, work is their purpose. You know, when you meet someone, they say, so, so what do you do? You know, and work is their purpose, as opposed to those who are entrenched in cooperatives. I believe that work is a purpose to get to an ends. It's a means to an ends, as opposed to being the purpose of their life. And if there's any other message that we can convey, that would be a message that I think would be one to capture if you're trying to understand the difference between cooperation and collaboration and just existing for the purpose of what you can attain in life. Because I think culturally speaking, we're more trained to try to get the most so that we can be the most as opposed to being the most so we can have the most. If that makes sense. But anyway, I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about, did, did we have a caller? Okay, we have a caller. I was about to give you something to talk about. We have a Mr. Olson on the line. So, Mr. Olson, please, your question or comment. Yeah, I was wondering if you could discuss whether this structure would be sustainable or are there any examples in the U.S. of uh, long-term successes of worker cooperatives? Yeah. Thanks so much. So absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about early on is being able to show the longevity of worker co-ops in the country. We know that the, you know, the majority of worker co-ops are between the ages of zero and 10, just because so many of them are starting. Most of them are startups. But there are a great deal of worker co-ops that are older than 30 years old. There is a uh, great example of a construction firm um, on Martha's Vineyard, and um, they have been, they converted to a worker co-op back in the 70s and really provide a good example for how a business, not only can they convert to being a worker co-op, but how can you steward that business and share decision-making and share profits over decades? Those, yeah, so those, those examples certainly exist, and they're not specific to industry. That particular one has to, happens to be in the construction industry, but co-ops thrive across industries and across sectors. Thank you so much for that question. And um, also, I know we were leading to talk about how can people become involved in this census? When you talk about the census, the biennial census, the decennial, is it? Uh, census, we always try and let people know that if you're not involved, you're not counted. I know this is just as important with your worker cooperative census. So tell us a little bit about how people can become involved and how people can make sure they're not in the position of telling you what is omitted from the census. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. So our census, people can go to usworker.coop slash census to then click and participate. But here's the thing. Again, co-ops are hard to track. We are trying to count as many and keep track of them and identify them as open as best we can. But so many start just at a grassroots level, so um, without talking to anyone. So we would love folks to be able to help us ensure that we get an accurate count. 
If you want to make sure we get an accurate count and there's an accurate reflection of the co-ops in your community, you can email census at usworker.coop. That's census at usworker.coop to help us just get this link to, to conduct the survey or to participate in the survey um, to the co-ops you know and just really help us show the growing movement that we're all a part of. Fantastic. Well, you know, I can't believe the time just goes by so so quickly. I want to give each of you a chance to wrap up. We only have a minute, so I give both of you a half a minute to wrap up. Uh, Rob? I'm going to throw the value of my half minute to, to you, Julian. So first of all, thanks you for being here. Thank you for being with my, my inaugural uh, you know, on the air here. A few stumbles here and there. We'll get better over time. But uh, all in all, we want to encourage people to complete that census because we want to go back to the early in the conversation where we talked about how one cooperative helped another one during the pandemic. Your fellow cooperatives can help you, but we have to know who you are. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. Great job today. You have a voice for radio, so <laughs> I'm sure there'll be space for you again. Thank you. <laughs> As Rob said, please complete the census. It's open now through June 30th. Um, the first 50 will be eligible for a Visa gift card as well. So there's some incentive there to get it done. But really, um, it will help us advocate for more support for worker co-ops and, and show that growing movement. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Rob. I end the show like Vernon ends the show. Thank all of you for listening. I'm Pat Thornton signing off and telling you to live cooperatively. Ciao. Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power.